0: Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's podcast dedicated to the good, the bad and the bizarre of movies, either starring, about or by pop stars. No podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm Graeme Williamson. I'm a film critic for thegeekshow.co.uk and the British Hover website, horrified.com. And this week I've been joined by...
1: Uh, Mark Conleff. I'm also uh, a writer on The Geek Show. Uh, you can also find me at We Are Cults. I've wrote some booklet essays for various Arrow films, and i am currently got a chapter in Scarred for Life, Volume 2, which oh, looks at yeah. uh, 1980s television.
0: Very exciting that I should mention my booklets a bit more because I'm very proud of them. Uh, yeah, absolutely, you should to mention yeah. them. But yeah, I like in booklets for second run. I've done them for uh, The Fabulous Baron Munchausen, The Year, and Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea. All films that are as good as their titles, I would absolutely. say.
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely.
0: Mm. But for now, let us go back to the late 70s where among the very, very very, very many things that the British punk movement of the day was opposed to was the notion that their scene was being commodified or exploited by outsiders who didn't really understand it. As a result, there were very few fictional films about the the movement. It's only really now that British punk can be put in its proper context as a backdrop to Disney's Cruella de Vil origin story. (laughs) But the time... Only one major British filmmaker got to make a movie about punk. As it happened, he was Derek Jarman, and this is his tie.
1: Oh, I was you know I was wondering why you were wearing a tie. <laughs> Do you think it was just like a <laughs> post-punk thing? I just thought you were you know. Just I don't balls. know actually. Yeah, I just thought you were. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, oh, tie, looking very formal. <laughs> How have you got Derek Jarman's tie? I
0: am not entirely sure where this story stands (laughs) up to scrutiny but uh, a friend of mine worked in a shop that, it it wasn't an antiques shop but it dealt with some rarities and collectibles and first editions and things and someone uh, once delivered a package from a friend or a relative who died and it had some quite sort of personal correspondence between them and Jarman so obviously that went on sale as a collectible but it also had this tie and although it's possible I guess that the guy's tie just fell in the box while it was all being parceled up there is obviously a part of me that absolutely wants to believe that I own Derek Jarman's tie
1: always go with the legend yeah print the legend as John Ford would say but yeah definitely Derek Jarman's tie definitely yeah absolutely (laughs) wow no this is this is Derek Jarman and
0: we are reviewing his 1978 film Jubilee which I think is the only film in cinema history to inspire a
1: response t-shirt yes yes Vivian Westwood's Horrible critique. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: That'll learn him.
1: (laughs) Horrible homophobic. I haven't actually read the thing. I've seen pictures of
0: it online, but it is such uh, like, it's it just looks like that guy who lives in one of the poorer streets of your town and puts boards outside his house explaining how, you know, the American government's stealing his thoughts. <laughs> it looks like that, but on a t shirt. It's this loser length post of tiny, tiny text. So yep. I have, I, I do not know
1: exactly what Westwood's objections were. She sort of calls him a, I think it's, Gay public school boy jerking off at titillation or something like that.
0: Well, I can see why the yawner of sex
1: would be so opposed to titillation, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think she was more opposed to the fact that he um, he took away Jordan, really. I think that was her a real criticism of the film but maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves.
0: I don't think so. I think we should probably talk about Jordan because A, she was in a lot of ways the impetus for this film and B, she is a figure who was, I think, only recently been sort of rediscovered and reappraised for her influence yeah. on British punk.
1: Yeah, there's a very good um, memoir of, of her life that she's co-written with Cathy uh, Unsworth that I heartily recommend uh, anybody getting tracking down and having a read of it's called defying gravity which of course is a line from the film
0: it's yes it is yes i hadn't put two and two together on that but that's lovely does she does she did she like the film
1: yeah she did yeah um i think she's one of the few who actually always seem to like the film mm. there has been a sort of shifting sounds of uh opinion really hasn't there i mean i think yeah. um Adam Ant I think really criticised it when it came out and then he now says that he really enjoys it uh um, not Tyre, sorry, Tyre is, is another one who's always enjoyed it. Vivian Westwood has now retracted that T-shirt apparently. She's, <laughs> she uh, printed a stupid I know, you'd, you'd really think it would be more in keeping of a sort of thing to write, to, to just to say I was wrong in a myriad of different letter sets, but no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but apparently no, she did go up to somebody and say, oh yeah, I did get that wrong and she's made, she's... um ensured it can't be reprinted or something that's what I hear anyway oh, so she's yes. obviously had a, a a change of heart as well I suppose but no Jordan's well I think her and Jarman just hit it off straight away didn't they and I think she's always been uh, a very loyal keeper of the flame really. yeah because part
0: of what made Jarman vulnerable for, from attacks from within the punk scene is that he was not an especially big fan of it, and punk was at this point a movement where you absolutely had to prove you're born a before you could even say a yeah. word about it. In many ways, yeah. it still is, I think.
1: Yeah, probably one of the few that still that still is like that, isn't mm-hmm. it? You're, you're either punk or you're not. is that whole sort of mantra, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but nobody can be quite sure what punk actually is, and I yes. think that's where that's where this film does so well really that it does just sort of skewer a lot of the um the pretension and hypocrisy of a movement that was i mean it was short-lived anyway but it was probably in its infancy when it when the film was being made
0: yeah because it'll have it'll have been made during the silver jubilee uh, which yeah was really the moment where British punk crested, obviously to any of our international listeners this will sound crazy because of course in in America and in a lot of other countries punk never became so big so quickly and as a result the American punk scene certainly lasted a very long time and produced a lot of innovative and interesting work over many decades but part of the problem with the British charts, particularly in the late 20th century, is that we are early adopters, you know, which is credible in some ways, but the British record-buying public tends to seize on something very early, and the risk of that is that it becomes drained out very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think punk was really the ultimate example of that, because it's not just because the the British punk scene's flagship band, the Sex Pistols imploded so horrifically, Um, though that's obviously a pretty good kind of symbol for what was going on. I think maybe one of the things that kind of really riled people about Jubilee is not just that it was critical of punk and it's not just that it was an outsider because in, in some ways punk thrived off outsiders getting angry at it. It's that what Jarman's criticisms of punk are of obviously very distinct from your average tabloid leader writer, and they're a lot harder to shake off.
1: Yeah, he's um, he sees it for what it is, really, doesn't he? He, mm-hmm. he know. I mean, it's it's the I think the the um, the key indicator of it is the character of Baldy Baldy. Bodger we pronounce that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Played by... Uh, uh, Orlando.
0: Well, What was his real name? He was... Uh, uh, Jack... Jack Burkett. Jack Burkett. And he was a member of Lindsay Kemp's dance troupe, who, of yes. course, mentored David early in his career, and they turn up for a scene in this. Uh, it was a... You know, fur, queer London art... Lindsay Kemp's dance company was a big Nexus at a time when there were not many nexuses
1: absolutely absolutely yeah but I think his character this sort of uber camp almost bond villain like <laughs> yeah. uh, music business Svengali um, a lot of people see Malcolm McLaren in it <laughs> which <laughs> might be another reason why uh, Westwood was so against it but I think it's it's just it's a, it's a laser-like uh, focus of drama to just hone in on the very thing that will end up killing the movement, which is the money men coming in and buying yeah. everything up and making it some homogenized, acceptable form of uh, of musical statements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's in that film, and I guess the punks at the time didn't want that; they wanted the the Clockwork Orange, and what they got instead was a very cynical. Uh, a, f- a film that ended on a very cynical note that sort of said, well, you know, this is your moment, but you've, you're on strings, really, aren't you? Your are yeah. puppets on strings. Uh, you don't get to write the history of your story. And I think that's um, that's a very profound sort of message that the film has. And it's
0: strange, really, because the Sex Pistols had already released EMI by this point, a song whose message is not boy, we're happy to sign for EMI. (laughs) I hope we make a lot of great records with this excellent company. (laughs) Um, But I suppose that's the bona fides thing. Again, Johnny Rotten could say that Punk was being exploited by the Money Men because he was a punk, and so... His statements on the scene had a moral legitimacy, but nobody wanted to hear it coming from Jarman,
1: even though no, that's right.
0: Jarman's early films I mean, if, if you define punk as being anti establishment and capable of ruffling feathers, he was punk.
1: He is, he is the punk godfather, basically, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, there's nobody more. I mean, I think Jordan has said that as well in the in the sense that mm-hmm. yes, he might be middle class, he might have a very posh accent, he might be well spoken, but you can't get more punk than Derek Jarman because, you know, he's gay at a time when, you know, to be gay was not something that many people would shout from the rooftops. You know, he's yeah. only recently been uh, legalized. Um, and he was repeatedly, you know, repeatedly a filmmaker who repeatedly um, just didn't obey any rules whatsoever. Yeah. So, I mean, how much more punk can you get, really? <laughs> Completely, yeah, yeah.
0: I think one of the things that he's sort of taking aim at, here is, is, and it, it links in with the criticism that we've been talking about, is punk's lack of historical perspective. And I suppose maybe the reason why the punks felt like their movement was never going to be exploited and never going to be co-opted is because they didn't have a sense of history. They didn't realise that this had happened to so many like avant-garde movements before them. But this starts off with that. This starts off as any movie about punk rock should, uh, in the court of Queen Elizabeth I... <laughs> Where her court astrologer, Dr John Dee, uh, is summoning forth Ariel, the nature spirit, from Shakespeare's The Tempest, to take them forward into the 1970s.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and then people wonder why it stopped punk. (laughs) Why were they complaining? (laughs) No, I guess um, it's like what you just said. Then you know they had no sense of history, and Mm -hmm. here is a man who is showing you a sense of history straight away. You know, I think one of um, one of the the joys of the decision to, you know, the totally surprising decision to to put Queen Elizabeth the First and Doctor John Dee into the mix was to sort of show you that this was a whole rich tapestry of England, which I think Jarman was always interested in. Mm as a filmmaker, wasn't it? This sort of uh, almost mythical Albion. Yeah. But, but studded with genuine um, truths rather than just constantly pandering to this myth of uh, Arcadia or anything like that. It, yeah. It, and it kind of... It's kind of... It, it helps the film a lot, I think, because... There's a put it this way. There's a review on Letterbox. I won't name the name because um, I can't remember it. <laughs> it's the only reason I won't name the name, uh, but it's it's a it's sort of a review that sort of says, "Oh, am I shocking you? This is shocking, isn't it? I'm a shocking you now. How about now?" Yes. And that's that's the, that's the view of the film and they're entitled to it. But I don't think that is that film. I don't think that is Jubilee because. There's such a tapestry of of it. It's not just shock, 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 shock. The shock comes for me from the fact that you can start at such a genteel uh, point as the court of a a Tudor queen Mm -hmm. and have them sort of weaved in and out of the story. And it's those quieter moments followed by the, the anarchy on the streets of London that I think does give it a tremendous value and currency of shock rather than just one after the other sort of juvenile shock tactics.
0: And I think when it does try to shock you, and there are things in it that are obviously very confrontational, but... The way they are filmed is very different to a filmmaker like, say, Larry Clark, who I think is just interested in shock tactics. Yeah, yeah. That when you have this pivotal scene where Queen Elizabeth II is killed in a botched mugging, the strange thing about that scene is that it is really pastoral and eerie. It's like, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. If you wanted to film that scene to shock, and it's, you know, a shocking concept, there are hundreds of ways that you could milk the shock value out of it better than that. But as it is, it ties in with a part of Jarman's work that is gaining more focus now, which is that he is very interested in edgelands and gardens and nature in a way that is, is very contemporary.
1: Yes yes very much so yeah yeah but past pastoral is definitely the word I was looking for then when I was Mm -hmm. sort of coming up with genteel and sort of thing but yeah I mean I remember first watching this as a teenager and I don't think I got that it was the queen at first.
0: Yeah that, that is the one bit where he sort of hedges his bets isn't it it's a woman lying on the floor and she's I guess she's dressed in a way that at the time people would think, oh, that looks like the Queen. But now, of course, the Queen is so much older that it doesn't does, look like it, it's,
1: it's the Brenda stereotype of the Queen, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And um, It's shot entirely from the back. They've not done that where they they get the uh, the lookalike who appeared in all those film and TV shows who didn't really look like the Queen anyway. Is that <laughs> the one who was in uh, the Doctor Who TV or Silver Nemesis? Which has a lot of parallels with Jubilee, doesn't it? It does, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it really does. Again, sort of you know, people from the past being transported to a present day, getting involved with skinheads. It's <laughs> dialogue in
0: iambic pentameter, all things yeah. campus Christmas. Yeah. yeah, it's all there, isn't it? Yeah. It
1: is. Kevin Clark was definitely a fan of Jubilee, definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it uh, it's it did it, 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 it would have been so easy and much more shocking. Surely they could have picked up one of those queen lookalikes yeah. and made a big thing of that, that moment where Bod, uh, Bodicea, uh, by Jenny Runnick, played by Jenny Runnick, um, kills her. Uh, but it's all shot from a distance. Um, you don't see anything. Uh, you she's basically after that, she's just lying on the floor, and a child picks up a, a sort of diamond and looks through mm. it. He looks through brings it up close to his eye looks through, it, and that's it. Then the next shot is Bod's in the um back home with the crown on her head. And I think it's only then that I sussed Oh, that was supposed to be the Queen.
0: Yeah. speaking of things that I should have sussed before, how have I only worked out that Bod's name is an allusion to Bodicea?
1: Bodicea, yeah. There's um there's also Mad uh Toy Wilcox's um I, oh, I can't remember now, but it's short for one of the people that uh, Doctor D would uh, would commune with, I believe. Yeah. Oh, my right, spirits!
0: Because yeah. we, we should we should mention that John D is a real person and one of the strangest figures in British
1: history in many ways. Played by one of the strangest figures in British history <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the only the only man in who is now probably featured. I don't know. He might be the only person. Oh no, because there's Ringo Starr as well. I was to say he might be the only person to feature on pop screen twice now, um, because. He's also in the Spice World movie, isn't he? You can't get two more, two more different films than uh, Spice World and Jubilee. You really
0: can't, no.
1: Although um, the idea, if only, if only in 1997 we could have had the Spice Girls killing Elizabeth the First. (laughs) Well, Elizabeth II, I should say. (laughs) Derek Derek Jarman's Jarman's Spice Spice World World.
0: would have been absolutely incredible. I think we can all
1: agree on that. <laughs> yeah, we meet we of course, um... Richard wow. O'Brien. Richard O'Brien, thank you. Yes. And it's funny, isn't it? Because this is only a couple of years after the
0: Rocky Horror Picture Show came out. And that was, you know, a studio backed thing with pretty generous budget. Uh, but here, a couple of years afterwards, you've got O'Brien, you've got Nell Campbell, another of the Rocky Horror cast as crabs. There's a sense that. The the two phenomena have not separated as much as they will in the future. Like today, Rocky Horror is almost like a, a sort of a beloved pantomime, really, isn't it? It's a, the yeah. cuddly safe face of sexual transgression, and Jubilee just has not had the edge took off it at all.
1: No, that's right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, there's a there's a coziness to Rocky Horror now, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's, it's a thing that when I was growing up in the nineties, you know, you watched Rocky Horror um, high school, and it was still like a transgressive act. Yeah, I've watched watched Rocky Horror last night, you know, Uh, whereas Jubilee is probably still a bit of a transgressive act, or it certainly has a a cachet still surrounding it that has got, as you say, it's still edgy. It's um, Mm. it's not been softened. It's not, um, it's not been tamed by nostalgia.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, pa- you know, maybe part of that is because the film has not been seen widely enough to become over familiar. But I do think true. there are still things in it that would jar with a modern audience today, like the presentation of the Sphinx and Angel, the two incestuous brothers. Yeah. Which is uh, like a mile away from anything I can imagine being in even an art house film now.
1: True. I'm very well played as well by um, Carl Johnson and Ian Charlson Ian Charlson, um, yeah Character of Fire, a world away from Characters of Fire, isn't it, playing Angel Yeah, in many ways <laughs> Ian Charlson's <laughs> later career offered him
0: few opportunities to say dialogue like, you clammy slag you've sat on
1: the KY with your fat ass." <laughs> and she does have a fat ass, toy doesn't she in Well? <laughs> i I I speak as somebody who likes fat asses, but I mean that is a fat ass. In the boiler she, suit later on, that is a fat ass.
0: She looks <laughs> cherubic, Toya Wilcox, in this and I yeah. think it's it's such a clever piece of casting because her her role in it is that she's the violent one. I mean, even Bot who kills the Queen is like <laughs> Is many, many rungs on the level of psychosis beneath mad. But yeah, I think it would be the it's losing
1: the name, isn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, the parents
0: doomed her with
1: that one, really, didn't they? <laughs> Well, yeah, weirdly, one of the things that I find um, again, I don't why I can't buy people to say, oh, it's just a shock value film is when they eventually do. I mean, we're jumping out of ourselves, but in a. In a tit for tat revenge, mm. once the uh once Sphinx and Angel and the kid played by Adamant are murdered, uh Mad and uh, Jordan's Armald nitrates go and stalk a special branch police officer and castrate him in the street. Mm. And considering
0: Mad has th- been... this is like you saying it's not just shock tactics, right? This is your argument yeah, yeah, for that. Yeah.
1: This is it's I'm getting there, I'm getting there, trust me, I'm getting... <laughs> And um, <laughs> but the point is for the whole of the film mad's been built up as this complete um loose cannon with mm. no morals whatsoever finds delight in any form of violence yet she breaks down crying after she's uh murdered yes. the policeman and it's a wonderful uh bit of acting from both women really i think mm. um Obviously, Toy, it's Toy's big moment because she gets to cry. And she's sort of like... And it's, it's the moment that kind of the, cracks her character open. Cracks her yeah. character open, exactly. She's slapping away at the, the cop as well. But I like what Jordan does, which is she just sort of stands back and just sort of looks utterly spent by the mm-hmm. whole thing and then sort of retreats away from it to just go and sort of have a moment by herself. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting, a really interesting choice. That Yeah.
0: And I think part of what this rewatch of it really sort of got through to me is that ultimately, on some level, Jarman likes these kids. He doesn't like what they're doing, but he thinks they at least deserve better. And I think that that is something idealistic that animates it and makes it more than just a critique of a youth movement that was already getting a fair bit of stick.
1: That was something yeah, that I think yeah. its detractors at the time did not understand. I think I think he certainly has a love-hate relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's, he's kind of saying, look, these kids aren't um, beyond help. They're not... Uh, they're not lost. They're not the Myra Hindley's that um, my traits yeah. believes to be a, a childhood heroine. You know, again, that's a shock comment. You know, when I was at school, Myra Hindley was my heroine. That, that
0: that's a shock comment, but that's also quite a sharp piece of observation. Because around the same time that this happened, you had a very short-lived band called the Moors Murderers, mm. uh, which featured. Uh, I mean, they say it featured. They all had like bags over their heads, and that was their, <laughs> one of their gimmicks. But. It had uh, Chrissy Hines and Steve Strange and Sue Catwoman, who was also, like, one of these kind of fashion leaders of the punk movement alongside John. Nowadays, like, as soon as you ask anyone about it you know Chrissy hind always says look I, I was in the band for a month and you think well you know, they broke up after a month it's not <laughs> like you're not like you're a keyboard player in the fall for a month you know there isn't a rich <laughs>
1: musical history it's, Yeah, they try and disassociate themselves from it as if it was just yeah I know what you mean yeah but at,
0: but at the time it was like it was like the way that punks used to use swastikas there was a sense of Maybe this is permissible shock tactics. Maybe this will land. It hadn't quite settled in the exact way that, you know, na- nowadays, if someone wears swastika and goes around sort of saying that Myra Hindley's the hero, you know that they are the shining star of the young Republicans. But back <laughs> then, it, it There was this sense that maybe there'll be a time when this lands in a different way and maybe it's now, maybe this does look like sort of standard de bourgeoisie.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Um, And I think what Jarman very cleverly does with the history aspect of again, it's that that whole, um, putting a historical perspective on something that is still just Kicking and screaming, being born really isn't it? Yeah. Even though he only had a short, a short life really before it became something else. Um, that he sort of suggests that history has always been bloody, wretched, mm-hmm. violent. Um, so there's nothing that these kids are doing that is any different from other chapters in history. And again, it goes back to Alma Nitrate's History books, isn't it? Where she mentions, you know, she talks about Hitler and says, well what's what's any different to Hitler than what Napoleon did or what Hannibal did yeah Uh, and Churchill is this revered figure but did he really change history for the better which is uh, you know the topics of conversation that we're still having to this very day certainly about Churchill yeah um, yeah still such a very contemporary topical conversation to be having but back then that was oh you can't say that about Churchill <laughs> Although it's funny,
0: I wonder if people are a bit more like that now because the the older audience at the time will yes remember Churchill's war leadership and they'll also remember voting him out in favour of Attlee in nineteen forty five. I think this idea of Churchill as completely untouchable, the ultimate prime minister, is something that has
1: gathered all for the decades it's the rose-tinted glasses of mm. um of various opportunistic right-wing gammons really isn't there like yes, yeah. farage and what have you i always say the thing about farage and people like that is that um they will vomit red white and blue um the blue in the face basically won't they? Um, yeah. and praise uh the the world war ii veterans or what have you. but in a way they rely on that generation dying out because it's that generation that can still say actually that's not what we're what we were about that's not how yeah. we we thought you know we were fighting people like you not
0: built the welfare state as soon as we got home
1: yeah exactly, exactly. they need those people to die out in a way to make the twisted version of history more palatable uh, more um, more seen as definite for Which is population quite, at large
0: that's quite a Jarmanesque point isn't it i mean there's a lot that yeah. makes me wish he was still with us now but i would i would love to see what someone as historically engaged as well as just politically engaged as him would make of this kind of mythical British
1: history
0: that exists he'd
1: have, now. He'd have gone to town on Brexit, absolutely. Completely. It would have been a yeah. fantastic film Yeah, uh, if he had that opportunity. Yeah, that would have been really something. I mean, you can't you can see it. I mean, once Brexit happened, I heard a lot of people reference Jubilee. Um, really? as this Yeah, yeah, as yeah, this idea of harking back to a time or celebrating a time of... Um, of, uh, of proper real Britannia tradition, uh, while we're in the middle of what looks very much like a dystopia. You know, I mean, yeah. the way that they shoot in uh, in East London, you know, they find these derelict, still blitz-ravaged neighborhoods, don't they? Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, now it looks like a set. Now it looks like um, set design from the Children of Men. Yeah. But back then that's that's what people were living in back then, wasn't it? You know, mm. they, they would walk past uh, rubbled rubbles heaps of rubble that used to be a house uh hoardings and stuff like that but it's it's dystopia really isn't it and uh yeah when um when we, we were talking about hard brexit last year people going oh it's gonna be like jubilee then isn't it you know everybody be sort of like yeah on the rampage and living in uh absolute carnage and destruction but there'll be people trying to wave the flag about it at the same time
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's, I think, one of the things that makes Jarman's films last is that although he made these films on a shoestring budget and he was never going to get a generous budget to make anything because he was such a subversive filmmaker, but he always manages to wring every last drop out of that budget. And I mean, things like what you're saying about finding the Devilix locations is an example of him finding a shortcut to do something really visually striking that I think a yeah. filmmaker who was used to having sets built for them would just not know how to start with.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, now you watch it in the context that it is now, and it just looks like a classic of British science fiction, really. Yeah. Rather than a film about punk. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's not just one thing. It's, um, It can be whatever you want to view it as, because again, the the clever thing is they never really set a year, even though it's called Jubilee, and it's Mm. sort of the sort of suggesting that you know they've travelled four hundred years. It's a sort of alternate reality, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah.
0: and I think the fact that it came out in seventy-eight, so the audience know that none of this actually happened during the Silver Jubilee year, gives it that kind of frisson, and also the fact that. I mean, you mentioned A Clockwork Orange earlier. A Clockwork Orange is one of the films that punks in Britain really drew from and yeah. really based parts of their look and iconography from. So I think part of what Jarman's reacting to is a, a kind of a feedback loop. He's been given this very visually-oriented, very design-oriented movement that is in many ways rooted in cinema. And he knows how to make that work again as cinema. I'm sure for all that he had his quibbles with punk, he was the, the kind of guy who would look at a Jamie Reid poster and think, yeah, that's terrific. That's exactly what it needs to be.
1: I mean, he loved the aesthetic, didn't he? I mean, that—that's. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the instant attraction of uh, of Jordan. In fact, I've got the. I've got. I've got to read it out because I love that quote from his, his diary. Yeah.
0: Uh, on
1: the first meeting of, of Jordan, or rather, not meeting the first sight of Jordan, because I don't think they actually spoke on the first meeting. Right. Was, um, he spotted her at Victoria Station, and uh, he's wrote in his diary, white painted boots clattering down the platform. Transparent plastic miniskirt revealing a hazy pudenda. Didn't they play? Jump. I think they played John, John Beale Show later that day. Didn't they? <laughs> hazy pudenda. <laughs> Venus t-shirt, smudged black eye paint, covered with a flaming blonde beehive. The face that launched a thousand tabloids. Art history as makeup. Lovely. I mean, it's a beautiful description of of. A literal walking work of art, which she was. Um, I mean, that's it. People who complain about the film as not being punk, can can we swear on this? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, they can get to fuck, can't they? <laughs> <laughs> because if, if Jordan says it's okay, and Jordan created punk, as far as I'm concerned, so if Jordan said it's okay, then and, and also time of- by me.
0: Part of the reason why I think Jordan was maybe drawn to it is because even as early as 1977, she had seen that commodifying aspect being brought to punk. She had invented this look that was so iconic that people were already putting it on postcards. She was getting stopped by tourists who wanted a photo with an authentic London punk. And, you know, what does an authentic London punk look like? Well, it looks like Jordan. Yeah, she was seeing how this movement was already being reduced to the base saleable element. So, of course, she reacted enthusiastically when someone came to her with a script that is about that. And it's also, I think we have to stress this because maybe we haven't enough yet, it's also really fucking funny.
1: It's a very funny script, yeah. It's a very funny script. Um. I always find, oh, I mean, the the Super Eight film that's in the middle. Well, mm. not the middle; it's quite early on, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, of Jordan, it's called Jordan's Dance in it, where she's uh, uh, doing a ballet dance around uh, flaming rubble on. Yes, uh, I think it's is it Butler's Wharf. I'm not sure. Um, there's a <laughs> there's a thing in it that. Uh, fascinates me, terrifies me, and finds utterly hilarious. And that's the naked guy in the um, the face mask of uh, Michelangelo's David. Yeah, because <laughs> that will never not look odd in a, <laughs> in a really unsettling kind of. Oh, that's weird. He's just sort of stood there, completely stark as, with one hand on his hip, watching her dance around the flames. Uh, but it's a giant fucking. David Head. <laughs> it
0: does have a sort of Vic Reeves big
1: night exactly, out exactly. to it. Exactly, exactly. I see that and it's something that I will... I, I instantly find odd, weird and, dis, and disorientating, but then I find utterly hilarious because of Vic Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, I mean, the script
0: too is just cracking line after cracking line. I love yeah, when yeah. Krabs asks the, Kate, the Adamant character what he does and he goes... Uh, Nothing, I'm a musician <laughs> It's
1: brilliant. It is, it's just a very funny But it's like that I think it might, for some people It might take a few goes to watch To think, am I supposed to find this funny? Mm-hmm. Or am I supposed to find this utterly shocking? When really you can find both things in it
0: Absolutely, <laughs> yeah And I, I think that's that's another thing that saves it from just being shock tactics, is that it is done with a sense of humour. It is done with a sense of, of learning too. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much erudition just in that opening section with Dr. John D and Ariel, which I think is, there's the scene where Ariel first appears and he's sort of reflecting a mirror, which is, yeah on the one hand, a very cheap way to give, you know, the sense that he's arrived in a flash of light, the mirror is reflecting the sun towards the camera, in between flashes of light that he appears. But it's also basically scrying. It's the technique that Dee and other mystics of that age used where they would look into a glass and they would flick it back and forth so that the sun flickered in and out of their eyes and they would use it to induce visions
1: yeah, yeah. It's 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 a very knowledgeable mm-hmm. film in that respect, isn't it? This is not a man who has not done his homework or has just happened upon these things. Yeah. He knows exactly what he's doing when he's putting things like that together. Um, and it is it's such a well presented like you say, you wouldn't think it had a low budget. Like it's, it, it's mm. just a mirror in the camera but it doesn't matter it looks fantastic absolutely you know, yeah Ariel's got those um black eyes hasn't he they yes. but, which look like ping pong balls sort of painted black and they probably are really placed okay. black and sort of wedged under his eyeball but it doesn't matter because it looks incredible mm.
0: And, and I think Jarman is, is very good at encoding the meaning of his films into things like set design and costumes and props so that even when it is just a scene of, you know, Bob Madden craps lying around talking crap and giving each other, like, temporary tattoos or something.
1: And there's a lot of scenes like that. There's a lot of scenes <laughs> like
0: that. <laughs> But there is always something in it that sort of feeds into the film's larger themes, even if it's just a bit of graffiti on the wall behind them, or there's an early scene with Matt, like, sat in front of a poster, which is just a, it's probably a mirror or something, a tabloid headline about one of the sex pistols being stabbed.
1: Yes, I noticed that. I watched it again last night and I noticed that and I wasn't sure if I'd I'd spotted it before. Uh, But yeah, that's an interesting one, yeah um and there's also uh Angel of Sphinx are reading a newspaper and it's something like Victim of the Pickets or something as if there's sort of gun-toting trade unionists out there which would be an ideal world for me really
0: (laughs) I saw that and I wondered about it I couldn't quite sort of get a handle on that but yeah you're right it is meant to be like some sort of propaganda sheet isn't
1: it yeah yeah you imagine it's the sort of thing that would you know be the headline of the day and it's like you say it's not technically 1977 but it's for a, 90, a late 70s audience so they're mm. going to think of the winter of discontent and things like that that's all wrapped up in there they can they can all read into those sort of things hmm
0: I said this on Directors' Lossary uh, about John Waters' films, and I think it also applies to Derek Jarman's films, that I am bitterly disappointed when an actor in a Derek Jarman film turns out to be just an actor, uh, rather than in the case of Hermione Demarine who plays Chaos, a former reporter for the International Times who briefly worked as a tightrope walker.
1: Yeah, yeah! <laughs> there are some great sort of characters that are just seemingly plucked out of Thinner or out of this weird um, climate that Mm. Jarman sort of uh, assembled around him really. But I yeah, love that the
0: ex-soldier is... with his garden gnomes. I think he's Max, my favourite cameo. Yeah. yeah.
1: Max is brilliant. And it's called it's it's in a way it's a callback to the same sort of character that the actor played in Sebastian as well. Cause I'm I'm sure he's called Max in Sebastian. Ah. And he is that kind of he's the one with the uh the syphilitic nose in Sebastian. And um uh, it is that kind of Battle hardened, squatty, but yeah. then suddenly this this huge soft side that he's just giving it all up, and he's he's there with his garden gnomes and his flowers and bingo on a night. Yeah. <laughs> but there's something about the fact that he scouts as well just sets it off for me. <laughs> you come down yeah. the bingo, so I You can.
0: You can weirdly believe him uh, as Scouse, can't you? There's something especially Scouse about this former soldier yeah. tending yeah. to his garden gnome collection.
1: Well, he reminds me a bit of—it's uh, the Scouse thing, not the character, just the Scouse thing of um, the guy in Ideal that Alfie Joey played. Who, the <laughs> who's obsessed with his allotment, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> it's that guy, isn't it? You gotta go with some chat.
0: Uh, We we should double back a bit, uh, though, to some of the people who are actors in this. We should talk a bit about uh, Ian Charleston and Carl Johnson, because in many ways, their later careers diverged pretty radically. Johnson has had a very prolific acting career, but for the purposes of this show, uh, he's mostly interesting in that he remained very, very loyal to Jam and, and appeared in a lot more of his films. Was Charleston, I think, had to, like, decry this
1: or something, didn't he? I imagine he did, yeah, to sort of... The way his career was going,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, I imagine there is a bit of that, yeah, well, I did that because I needed the money, or I did that because, I'm, I mean, I don't know the full details, but I imagine so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, as you say, Johnson remained incredibly loyal, Um got the lead role in uh, Wittgenstein which I think is um, a a fantastic performance from him. He's one of my favourite actors really, Carl Johnson and he's very good in this well they they both are Um, and that's another problem with the film as well because when people sort of say oh it's very juvenile, they're they're very pretentious acting, they're they're non-actors it's like, have you seen the cast? They're not non-actors at all (laughs) I was unaware that Jenny Von Aker was an amateur. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> it's like, all right, it's Toya Wilcox's possibly her first big movie. But, mm. and yes, Jordan's not an actress. But, I mean, Ian Charleston, Carl Johnson, uh, Linda Spurrier. Is it Spurrier? Is that She's what I'm so, so great it? in this movie. She's brilliant in it. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. The scenes with those three in bed. Uh, yeah. There's just something. To, and again, it it... it defies expectation because you're here to watch a punk film and there's three very softly softly spoken people yeah. basically having sex in bed. <laughs> I think there is a part of this those
0: scenes where you almost forget that you were watching an incestuous bisexual threesome and the whole thing <laughs> just has a kind of cosy sitcom air to it. You
1: <laughs> Especially <laughs> when they then plod off down to uh Max's, to Max's house, house to look at his uh, look at his plants and arrange Getting a game. Germans, of bingo. The good life, yeah. <laughs> 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 That's good. <laughs> yeah, Von Eker, I think, is
0: fantastic in this. And I think she, in general, does not get the that she deserves because every now and then there is an actor where, you, like Tevin Stamp in the 60s, I would say, is my ultimate example, where part of you just wants to applaud them for working with every interesting director of their either. Yeah. Bunnaker has worked with Jarman, Antonioni, Cassavetes, Pasolini, Roeg, Tony Richardson, and mm. it's not all Tony stuff. She can do you know mm. do a good genre director too. Freddie Francis.
1: Freddie Francis, yeah. yeah. And she's also in um the final program with uh, John Finch.
0: I don't know that.
1: Oh, it's um you know the uh <sighs> People will be screaming now. Listening to this or watching this, uh, it's Blending a guy the who used to. It's a guy who used to direct a lot of um, the Avengers, and it's based on. Is it Michael? Is it Michael Morcock or Michael Morrick? I can never pronounce that guy's oh, name.
0: Well, I also cannot pronounce it, but I know exactly who you're referring to.
1: That's a a, a wonderfully strange. Is it Robert? Robert, somebody, is the director. He did the Avengers. He did a lot of um, Avengers episodes and the Abominable Dr. Fibes.
0: Right. Oh, yeah, there it is on her CV. Um, Robert, oh, boy, we were having some pronunciation problems before. It's so difficult but it's sort of it's robert fuest f-u-e-s-t
1: yeah yeah Fuest. i think i'm fuest. not sure i i, I took a running jump in it as well robert fust i call it but yeah that is a a really um strange interesting film but they, and the character i can't remember the name of the character but he's he sort of like this this ant this uh Jerry Cornelius. Jerry Cornelius. This kind of weird um, hippie LSD taking James Bond. And he's
0: kind Uh, of... He's open source, isn't he, Jerry Cornelius? is is very famous for allowing other authors to create Jerry Cornelius' stories.
1: Yeah, in whatever way they wish, yeah, yeah. Mm. But she's very good in that film as well, and she looks stunning, the The costume design and that. And she obviously, this is a woman who can wear a costume. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And she just looks incredible in it, yeah.
0: She kept reminding me, looks-wise, I kept thinking of Keely Hawes in this, particularly oh, right. as Ford. She really looked like Keely Hawes to me. But there's that kind
1: of uh, loose-limbed uh, adolescent androgyny, I mm. guess, isn't there? Good way to point yeah. That maybe brings in that. And the fact that she, you know, she is wearing, like, uh, power suits. suits. Yeah, yeah, power suits. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's got um, a bit of
0: her line of duty, kind of ashes-to-ashes wardrobe. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely,
0: yeah. No I th- I think it's a really great film I think it's flawed but I don't know how you could take the flaws out without making it substantially less interesting
1: That's right yeah I mean I don't it's one of those films that <sighs> I don't think there's another way of doing it you're right mm. I don't think this and I think it's it's like it's almost like a jenga you don't want to take anything out because it'll just collapse collapse upon itself really there are some bits that you do sit back and think well was that required Hmm. but even those bits have something to say about either the movement itself society as a whole at the time or whatever jarman's trying to say about this yearning for a loss of English identity that perhaps never existed anyway. Mm-hmm. There's always something going on there, and it's a film that it's a film that spectacularly shows its own workings as well for you. You know, in that there's a great scene early on in in the um, the derelict streets where somebody has just graffitied postmodern. Yes,
0: <laughs> that was like the one bit where I thought that that is maybe a bit on the nose. That <laughs> it is
1: literally show your workings out here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we were it's like an a-level exam paper isn't it of um how would you make a punk film about punk that has only really existed for the past 12 months. Show yeah. your workings out here.
0: <laughs> but it is one of those films and one of those films that when they come off, I love, where every single detail of it, even if it's just, as you say, a piece of graffiti in the background, can be sort of unpicked and traced back to some wider web of meaning. It's a very it's a very Alan Moore-ish film, isn't it?
1: And I'm not just saying yeah, that because John yeah.
0: Dee's there. The whole structuring an attitude if it feels very league of extraordinary
1: gentlemen. Do you know, it's weird you should say that because when I watched it again last night, I thought, why has nobody adapted this as a graphic novel? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because that would be a really interesting, it would give it that extra life to Mm. sort of make it a bit more accessible to to the viewing public, really. And it might, I mean, it is a cult. There's no mistaking it's a cult, but it could be an even bigger, cult film if it has a bit more of a an extra life to it and if if somebody was to sort of make it a graphic novel I think that would give it um, a bit more diversity. Yeah it would put it in a medium
0: where I think people are used to reading stories that way partly because with a graphic novel you can just sort of paw over it and just go deep into it and look up every single detail in it. And in a film, obviously, you're limited because it has to move at the speed of a projector. But um, I think that there is just something in Jarman's precise aesthetics and the way that he likes to layer meanings into every single aspect of the mise-en-scene that you're right, it does
1: feel very graphic
0: novel-like.
1: It probably influenced some graphic novelists. Um like I would I'm, imagine that you would see a direct line from this to Tank Girl, perhaps.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd be amazed if Mu wasn't a fan. I mean... You can't expect him to stay away from a film where Dr. John Dee's a supporting character. No, no. No. That's true, yeah. But yes, um, no, I think that's covered it. It's, it's, like I say, it's a film I hardly recommend, and even if you find it deeply annoying, um, it's a productive and interesting form of annoyance.
1: Yeah, even if you find it deeply annoying, it's part of... That's probably done its job then, hasn't it? Because it is yeah. punk at the end of the day. <laughs> it wasn't. It's never going to be something that you're going to sit down and find a cosy viewing. Mm. Um, even if you love it, it it's deliberately um, astringent, abrasive. Yeah, abrasive. Yeah, all those as words, you know. It's, <laughs> uh, it's deliberately so. So I mean, it, I think it. If it's annoying you, it's done its job basically
0: um so yeah absolutely so on that annoying note uh that's been (laughs) a lot from pop screen for another week uh as as always if you subscribe to our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the show you will get a monthly bonus episode as well as our other movie podcast directors lottery or if you want, you can just sort of give us a rating on iTunes, share us around because, you know, the simple things are also a bigger help than you might think. But until then, uh, when we're back next week with something new, I'm Graham.
1: I am the ghost of Derek Jarman's time. <laughs> no, sorry. I am I am Mark Henry. <laughs> and we'll see you all next week. Bye.